Trap Life Podcast. We are back for another exciting episode. It is September, and you know what September means on the sickles on the Trap Life Podcast. It's Sickle Cell Awareness Month. And I have a very special guest. Um, there aren't a lot of advocates in the sickle cell space beyond people who are directly connected to someone with sickle cell. And I am very happy to have Maya Bloomberg on the podcast today because she is exactly that, uh, the rare advocate for sickle cell. And um, we're going to talk about, this is a sickle cell awareness month based episode. We're going to have some more sickle cell content, but I'm really happy to have Maya on to kick us off this month. Maya, thank you for coming. Well, thank you so much for inviting me onto this podcast. As you mentioned, I am a huge sickle cell advocate. So any opportunity I have to really spread awareness and more importantly, just spread really good knowledge and information in an easy to understand way, I feel like it ultimately will help patients better advocate for themselves and and for their health. So um, I'm a hematology nurse practitioner. I've been in my current role for seven years. And before that, I uh, was a bedside nurse on a med surge tele taking care of countless patients with sickle cell disease, among other issues. Uh, But in my current role, I'm taking care of all benign or non-malignant hematology, but at least 50% of that is among the sickle cell population. So I'm very excited to be here with y'all today. Okay. So that that reminds me, where, where are you based out of? Born and raised in Baltimore. So anybody in Baltimore, go Ravens. It's upsetting injuries we're having, but we'll see how our, our team yeah. goes tomorrow. <laughs> Three ACL injuries to the running backs. Eh? I know. It's bad luck. But um, I currently reside in Miami. I went to University of Miami for college and graduate school. So go Canes. And I've been here for over a decade now, which is crazy. Well, I asked that because I saw something that I thought was um... – interesting before and I don't think I had seen it that they're the highest population of sickle cell patients or people with sickle cell is in Florida correct so there's around a hundred thousand people within the United States in with sickle cell disease and when we look at the prevalence of sickle cell we actually see that more than half of all of the cases reside within 10 states in the United States but the number one prevalence is in Florida I think it's around 8,800 to 9,000 cases but it doesn't make sense we know cold temperatures is a huge trigger for sickle cell so makes sense to get to the sunny state of Florida okay that yeah I just saw that recently and I was like hmm that's interesting (laughs) so with all that being said, that's um, how did you get into medicine? So my dad is a provider and I always used to volunteer at his hospital. And I would just, I remember one day I was organizing a bunch of these letters that he would get from patients. And it made me realize how rewarding of a career being in medicine could be. I still remember, I think my college essay started with one of the letters I read, but it's, it started off saying, I reached for the stars and we got the universe. And it really just compelled me and made me realize that there's more to just our life than ourselves. And I really wanted to try to expand and help other people. Um, So I got into medicine that way. My first job was a med surge tele as a bedside nurse. And I quickly worked my way up to charge nurse and manager of the floor. Um, But when I took care of patients inside the hospital and you take care of sickle cell patients specifically, you're really only seeing the pain and the blood transfusions, uh, pain medication, et cetera. But it wasn't until I became a hematology nurse practitioner and I started seeing patients outside of the hospital when I realized there's so much more to sickle cell than just pain and anemia. It really encompasses the entire body. And it's such an unpredictable type of disorder that carries really high morbidity, meaning complications and premature mortality, meaning early death, that it was such an eye-opening realization because I see my patients being mistreated in the emergency rooms. And that's kind of what triggered this passion of mine. It also doesn't hurt that the physician I work with, Dr. Thomas Harrington, is a huge advocate and he's so passionate with everything that he does that it's just kind of, it's magnetic. It's magnetic energy. And he kind of compelled me to become a huge advocate for this population. So what prompted you to get into becoming a nurse practitioner rather than just staying with your great career as a nurse? So I loved being a nurse, but the floor that I worked on, it, it was called penthouse, not being like that. It was just 
the floor of the building, but the floor I on, uh, we sometimes had seven to one nurse patient ratios. Uh, you had to have really good time to survive on this floor. But I can say it really gave me such a good core foundation of nursing that I could see and burnt out fast if I was going to continue that long term. And I know that I wanted to be able to be more in a primary role for making decisions and treatment decisions for my patients. I loved the nursing aspect and the education and the empathy and just being able to help a patient from that side. But I knew I wanted to do a little bit more. So that's kind of the logical track then meant to become a nurse practitioner. Okay. And explain to us what a nurse practitioner is. I know what it is, but some people in the audience maybe don't. Sure. So a nurse practitioner, it's an advanced degree. It's a master's degree that they actually are kind of getting rid of and making it a doctoral degree now. But it allows you to diagnose, to treat, to prescribe. In different states, there's different scopes of Florida, you can't practice independently as a nurse practitioner, meaning you're always going to need a supervising doctor. In my setup, it doesn't really make a difference because the doctor treats me like an equal and we do a lot of decisions independently together, et cetera. Um, other nurse practitioners um, might take more of a backseat role. Then in other states, I mean, in Maryland, for example, a nurse practitioner can have her own clinic and be able to do everything without any oversight of a physician. So it really depends what state that you live in, but it's an advanced registered nurse degree, nurse treat, prescribe, and really just manage a patient. And we know that it will differ from state to state, but how is it different than a physician's assistance? So it is similar in the sense that you can diagnose and treat. The schooling is different. With a nurse practitioner, you know that they had a background in nursing to begin with. So I feel like you already have that empathy and wanting to help others from the get-go of your degree, where with a physician or with any background, and you just need to do the prerequisites. But it's similar. You need to have some oversight from a physician, but you diagnose, you can prescribe. Uh, it's very similar. And do you have any interest in maybe pursuing that at some point, or are you just, this is the perfect fit for you? No, nurse practice, if I were to do anything, I would go back to get my doctoral degree. There's a doctorate of nurse practice called a DNP, and that's essentially the highest level of education you can get as a nurse practitioner. So Oh, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense where I'm at in my life and the financial aspect of that, but that's definitely on my to-do list probably when my kids are a little bit more self-sufficient. Okay. And so kind of walk us through what you've seen cumulatively that a sickle cell patient would go through um, from a treatment standpoint, say from at home care to the ER, to the hospital, to discharge? Well, that's, that's a very large and loaded question. I would say when you're in the hospital, it's obviously you're just taking care of the acute issue. So what's going on right now? And that's the pain crisis. Start in the hospital is not good management. And I can't tell you how many times I'll see sickle cell patients just started on hydroxyurea during an admission. I'm thinking to myself, that's, you need to be on this medicine long-term for at least two to three months for some benefit. But when somebody's in the emergency room or they're in the hospital for an acute sickle cell crisis, that's what our thing is. We're not going to do screening tests to try to check how their kidneys are or other aspects. We're really just going to focus on the pain and the anemia at that time. Um, so pain management is huge. We know that during sickle cell crises, oftentimes you do need opiates or narcotic medications to get adequate relief of pain. I take a, a big approach when it comes to pain management. We know when it comes to opioids, the more you take narcotics, you're ultimately going to develop a tolerance over time. And tolerance essentially means the doses that you've been taking before for pain aren't going to work. You're going to need higher doses to get that same amount of pain relief. So a way to decrease that risk of developing tolerance is I like to use a multiple type of medication approach. So I use my narcotics that work on your brain receptors to turn off pain. But when you're having a sickle cell crisis, your body's in this pro-inflammatory state. So taking anti-inflammatories is really helpful. When I'm having a patient in the hospital, I usually have them on Toradol in addition to their narcotics. And Toradol is an IV uh, anti-inflammatory, kind of similar to ibuprofen, which is the oral form. But if somebody's outside of the hospital having a sickle cell crisis, 
taking, we always say don't mix anything with your Percocet or your narcotics, but this is an instance where you actually can take uh, ibuprofen or Aleve with your narcotic. And it has a really nice synergistic or an additive effect with each other. Because again, you have one that's addressing the inflammation and then you have the other that's addressing uh, the, the pain and that our brain receptors are activated. In the hospital, obviously blood transfusions could be common if they are having uh, rapid hemolysis or red cell breakdown causing anemia. Anytime somebody's having a sickle cell crisis, there's the chance of having organ involvement too. So, I mean, making sure that the liver's okay, the kidney's okay. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a patient will get admitted for a sickle cell crisis and an acute kidney injury because dehydration is the number one trigger for your crises. And when your body is dehydrated, it diverts blood flow to the essential organs. So that's really our brain and our heart. So our kidneys are kind of ignored at this and you can get kidney injury because everybody to be able to work 100%. So if your kidneys getting enough blood flow, you can get an acute kidney injury. So when you're in the hospital, it really is focusing on the pain management, the anemia, and then any other type of complications or organ issues that are associated with that crisis. So I want to go back to the Toradol point that you made. What was the, um, you, you can use it at home. There's a somewhat of an equivalent with the you could use it as like with the Percocet you use uh you would use the ibuprofen intermittently so obviously I can't be providing any medical advice and you should be consulting with your provider for the best of strategies course. given your history but with that being said I oftentimes will have my patients take an anti-inflammatory so NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are great anti-inflammatories this includes ibuprofen Aleve Motrin naproxen, that class of medications. So that you can take with oxycodone, dilaudid, because they have two totally separate mechanisms of action and therefore don't have that concerning interaction where you can cause respiratory depression or your heart rate to slow down too quickly. Um, but if you have any kidney issues, for example, you do not want to be taking NSAID. So it really is important to speak to your provider. But a lot of times people can get better pain relief by having a little bit more of a combination of medications. So that's one aspect that addresses the inflammation. Another aspect of pain, which oftentimes is not addressed, is neuropathic pain. And neuropathic pain is just a fancy word for nerve pain, which we see very commonly in sickle cell patients. So we have right. specific medicines that address nerve pain, like gabapentin or neurontin or Lyrica, pregabalin. So you can use a multiple type of approach where you have your narcotics, you have your anti-inflammatory you have your nerve pain medication. And I, I should say this is really somebody who has chronic pain and acute pain. I wouldn't expect somebody who has maybe two, three sickle cell crises a year having this whole regimen of medication. But right. for those patients who do have chronic pain and they're having their baseline level of pain is probably a five to six. So when they're having an acute crisis on top of their chronic pain, they're needing a large dose of narcotics and opiates in order to get some relief. And my goal as a provider is to keep you out of the hospital and keep you out of the emergency room. So I do try to take a little bit more of a creative approach with my cocktail of medications in the safest way. But uh, I think it's important to address that and try to decrease the risk of opioid tolerance as well. Yeah, because I... You know, that's something that, um, you know, I have to think about constantly is should, you know, you, you don't want to build up the tolerance, but you also don't want to be in pain. Right. You know, so it, it, it's a, a balance. And like you said, um, you know, some people's baseline of pain is higher. You know, I think my my five or six on the scale, and that, that's what we were referring to for the audience. Uh, so the pain scale is one through 10. One being like, no, well, zero really being no pain, one being not much pain, and then 10 being the worst pain ever. Um, as I've, as I've grown up, I, I kind of think that it's, um, it's a little inaccurate, the pain scale. I don't think it's as effective as it used to be when I was a kid um, and I, I think as you grow up you have to be a little bit more descriptive about what exactly the pain that you're feeling because I think when you experience pain on a regular basis you do build up a tolerance and you not just to the medication but to your pain tolerance your pain threshold 
mm-hmm. is going to increase exponentially. Um, so the pain that might be a five when you were 10 isn't the same. That's more like a, a three now. Right, because the threshold is, it's so true. I always say that we need to make new pain scales specifically for people who have chronic pain, because I don't feel like the pain scales that we currently use really are the most accurate in capturing how a patient really is feeling. Yeah, they're really not. There there needs to be like uh, different tiers of pain thresholds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because of that threshold, it it really does change. Um, And then the higher your threshold, it's almost like the higher um, your tolerance for the medication can become as well. So it it is very tricky. Um, And and I would say it's on the individual, um, but it's also the main issue is a lot of times sickle cell patients aren't believed that pain doesn't, isn't real. Right. Uh, or it's not perceived as being real or it's melodramatic or drug seeking when yeah. statistically, you know, across the board, that's proven to be not true. I mean, we see that when we talk about addiction to narcotics, only 10% of people who are prescribed narcotics are going to become addicted. However, when you look at our sickle cell patients and you look at the improper I, I mean they, they just don't get the appropriate management when they go to the emergency room I mean we know that patients uh, black Americans and those with sickle so there's 25 percent longer wait times in the emergency room we also see that a black American is 22 percent less likely than somebody who's Caucasian to receive the pain medications they need and when you see our sickle cell patients I mean it's a huge psychological burden you think about these patients are even you know, you're completely fine one second. And then the next second, you just could be in the worst pain of your life. You're trying to treat it at home. So and you finally realize, you know, it's just getting to that point, my medicine's not helping me. So you go to the emergency room, only to be surrounded by doubting providers. And you're constantly just trying to prove that you're in pain. And a patient once said to me, it's like, we don't fake feeling well, we fake or we don't fake feeling sick, we fake feeling well. And ever exactly. since I heard that it was such an aha moment. And it's this is where my passion really comes from, because I see some of the treatment my patients get in the hospital. And my patients are the ones who really are trying to stay out. They're making their follow-up appointments. They're doing everything as we prescribe. We're checking their labs. We're taking a really good approach. So if they're coming to the hospital infrequently and they're being labeled and being mistreated, it's just such a frustration. I can't imagine from the patient side, because I know how frustrated I get from the provider side. But I think there also needs to be an understanding when it comes to pain management, knowing that you can develop tolerance, there needs to be realistic expectations on what pain relief is going to be, right? Right. I mean, you're never going to have a zero out of 10 pain when you're in the hospital. Our goal is to try to get your pain to a manageable level where you can manage it at home on your oral medicines. I mean, sometimes patients feel like they're getting kicked out of the hospital too soon. And sometimes they very well are. They're so focused on uh, what the hospital reimbursement and what your insurance is going to reimburse and how many days for their length of stay that they'll allot for a certain diagnosis. And sometimes they get so caught up in that instead of the patient. But then at the other end of the spectrum, patients also need to understand we don't want to keep you in the hospital any longer because the longer you're there, the more issues that do happen, whether it's with sickle cell or any other diagnosis. Um, so it really is just a happy medium to try to find what the best dosage to get you that relief and get you back home. When it comes to being on the outside of the hospital with pain management, um, the physician that I work with and I were very modest, I would say, when it comes to prescribing narcotics. And we do lose some patients because sometimes patients, they just want their oxycodone 30 milligrams because they take that 30 milligrams and their pain is gone. For me, I want to put you on the lowest dose that you need in order to get your pain relieved. So I usually like to prescribe the oxycodone five milligrams and instead of giving you 60 tablets, 90 tablets. So that way, if your pain is more mild, you can take one tablet. If it's more severe, you can take two to three tablets, but it gives you the ability to kind of titrate your dose so you can manage your pain based on that level. Because if I give somebody an oxycodone 30 milligram tablet, even if their pain is more mild, they only have that 30 milligram tablet. And we all know oxycodone and dilaudid are little drop pills that are really hard to break and have things like that. Right. So that's just going to feed into that tolerance problem. So sometimes there is a disconnect between patients and providers and what a patient's goal is. But for me as a provider, I see that the landscape of sickle cell really is changing. We have a lot of optimism and things that I can finally 
instill some hope with different treatments and hopefully a cure uh, sooner than later on the horizon. So my goal is to try to keep you as healthy as possible. So once that cure is available, we're not dealing with issues like dependence to opioids, uh, complications of sickle cell, like joint issues and things like that. So I, I hope patients really just view the bigger picture of sickle cell. It's sometimes hard to get caught up. Like I just need to get this pain controlled and get out of it. But if you're 20 years old, you want to think about what's life going to be like when I'm 40 years old and really just put that into perspective. Because when you're 40, I want to make sure that we still have pain medication and a regimen that's going to be able to keep you out of that hospital. Well, for me right now, I, you know, I'm going, my next birthday, I'm going to be 30. And so I don't, I don't want to be on painkillers to the extent that I have been, um, for really the past 10 years, but much more so um, the past like four years, uh, the last three years have been, you know, a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. Than, um, I've had, you know, varying various levels of health. Um, and so I, I don't, you know, I don't want to have kids and, you know, not be able to play with them and spend time with them and and so I want to be as healthy as I can be, you know, outside of the medication. So, sure. you know, just making sure I'm taking the hydroxyurea and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, don't want to be loopy. I just want to be functional and, you know, just be the best version of myself, the healthiest version of myself that I can be. Definitely. And then, you know, with the, 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 the long-term effects of the, it, it's, you know, it's changed some of my you know, physical features even. Yeah. So, I mean, you brought up hydroxyurea. So I think we can dive into treatment since we're talking about pain. So one of my pet peeves is if I have a patient who's having chronic pain, but then I'm offering them different treatments to try to prevent the pain because it's easier to prevent because pain medication, it's just a band-aid. We're masking your pain, but we're not really treating what's going on inside. So hydroxyurea, it really is that golden standard. It's our number one treatment of choice for sickle cell disease. It's unfortunate because it wasn't even created for sickle cell disease, but it works by slowing down DNA synthesis. And in patients with sickle cell, everything is just producing too much. So they started studying hydroxyurea back in the 80s, and that's when they found that hydroxyurea increases the amount of fetal hemoglobin production. And fetal hemoglobin is what babies are born with, all babies are born with. But it stops, we stop producing fetal hemoglobin at around six months of age. And usually babies with sickle cell disease will be healthy up until that time once they start producing the sickled hemoglobin, which is that six to 12 month mark. But with hydroxyurea, we're increasing fetal hemoglobin production. So it's really stabilizing your red cells. So they're not going to sickle as well. So by doing that improves your hemoglobin. But more importantly, it's really the only medicine that we have decades of data on that we can say you're going to live longer with sickle cell with this medication. We have data to show that it decreases the complications, it decreases the need for blood transfusions, it decreases the risk of acute chest injury. And we have a baby hug study where for decades too, we literally are putting babies once they're born with sickle cell on hydroxyurea. Um, So that is a great treatment. But with anything, it's never a one size fits all. So while the majority of people do very well on hydroxyurea, I understand it's not always going to be the case for others. But in the past few years, we finally have different treatment options. I mean, I was only able to prescribe hydroxyurea. And now I finally have a combination type of therapy that we can or that we can prescribe for somebody, which is awesome because again, hydroxyurea is not going to work for everybody. Um, we now have a DACVIA, which is an IV infusion. It not increase the hemoglobin. And it, what it does, it decreases the stickiness of the whole process that's happening with sickle cell. I mean, we always think with a sickle cell, we think of the sickled hemoglobin causing the blockage in the blood flow, but that's really only one piece of the puzzle. After that sickle cell causes some vessel damage, they're really sticky. We have other sickle cells that are attaching, but it causes your body to release this molecule that really just increases the stickiness of everything and causes white cells and platelets and all of these things to attach onto the sticky sickle cells and worse. So the medicine Adactio essentially calms down that inflammatory process and decreases the stickiness. And then by doing that, decreases the pain. And in clinical trials, there were actually 36% of patients had zero pain at all compared to nobody on the placebo, which I think is pretty wonderful. But more importantly, the majority of patients did have a reduction in their pain episodes. 
if they still had the same frequency of pain, it usually was less severe or it didn't last as long. So that's a nice strategy that we're able to add. Um, there's red blood cell transfusions or red cell exchange. I mean, I have some patients who have frequent crises and we just haven't been able to optimize them uh, with the strategies that we have and the treatment options that we have, where with red cell exchange, it's essentially you're giving blood and we're taking out your sickled blood. And by doing that, we're kind of leaving you at a sickle cell trait state. So in theory, you shouldn't have the pain episodes and shouldn't have a lot of the issues. And I mean, I have one gentleman who's 35 years old. He used to have hospitalizations on a monthly basis. We started him on exchanges and he just had his first hospitalization in five years, but it wasn't even for a sickle cell crisis. It was for an, uh, an ear infection. So for, we'll, we'll let that one slide. But we're actually able to provide such a better treatment approach now than we were able to five years ago from a sickle cell standpoint that I would just urge people who maybe if hydroxyurea didn't work for you, don't give up because now we do have newer treatment options. We have more and more research looking at even other res uh, treatment options to be able to offer patients. So the ones who our patients, we haven't necessarily been able to optimize them and they're still having pain or still having anemia, we're going to be able to offer so much more with more and more time and more and more research that's conducted. I love that. Um, just to add, um, I'm actually on um, Adavico. Perfect. How long have you been on it now? Uh, since March. So I actually have my next appointment this Wednesday. Have you noticed it's, it might be a, a little soon, but at the same time, you've been on it for six. Have you noticed any difference yet with your pain? No, I haven't. But I, I'm taking the long term view on things. That's just kind of um, the way I think, you sure. know. Um, so I, I want to give it at least a full year before I evaluate if it's know, a good option for you or not. Yeah. And, and there, there's not really a drawback to it, um, you know, well, where compared to the hydroxyurea, where, you know, sometimes the side effects of it outweigh the, the benefit that it gives people. Right. But, um, yeah, with this, there's, I mean, there's, it's not. As long I, as I you have IV access, there shouldn't be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's a once a month treatment, not, nothing too crazy. So I, I think. I would advocate that people give it an opportunity. And what I'm noticing with Adaxia for my patients is the ones who have chronic pain, it seems like the Adaxia has been more beneficial to prevent the acute on chronic pain. So the acute sickle cell crisis that on top of their chronic pain, um, chronic pain is still there. So I think this is where the future research, maybe there'll be something else that is going to be better to address that. But my patients who don't have chronic pain, aside from their acute sickle cell crises, those are the ones that I've noticed, especially are doing really well with the DACTA. And then what's the other clinical name for it? It starts with the C. It's Crizo. Crizolizumab. Say that 10 times fast. I always mess up. I, I actually mess up the, the other name for it. The I just call it the treatment. For all we know, I'm saying it wrong too. No, just kidding. But the um, so there's what in total there's only six treatments of sickle cell. There's actually only four treatments right now. There's hydroxyurea. There's Endari, which is natural supplement of L-glutamine, just super high doses, and they charge a very expensive amount. So I think people who are trying to take a more natural approach, this could be for you. I personally, I haven't had the best success, but I'm always have that approach. If it's not going to cost you a lot of money, we can get it approved by your insurance. Let's at least try it before we completely roll it out. And then the two newest ones that were approved October, November of 2018 was Adacvio and Oxbrita or Voxelator. Voxelator or Oxbrita is an oral medication by GBT. And the way this medication works, it increases the oxygen affinity or how well the oxygen is binding to the hemoglobin molecule. So as a reminder, our red cells are formed of hemoglobin and they go through the body and that's what carries oxygen to all of our tissues. But under circumstances, say you're dehydrated or you have an infection or you're in high altitudes and we have that drop in oxygen, 
once the oxygen detaches from the hemoglobin cell, that's when the hemoglobin S polymerization happens, which is just the super fancy word, meaning the cell sickles in shape and becomes long, rigid, and sticky. And again, as a reminder, the lifespan of a normal red cell is 120 days, but for a sickled red cell is only 10 to 20 days, which is why we see the anemia. Uh, so this medicine, again, it, by, it stabilizes the hemoglobin by causing the oxygen to stick more strongly. And by doing that, decreases hemolysis or red cell breakdown and increases hemoglobin. The study, though, it wasn't really focused on pain. It really was just focused on the percentage of patients who had at least one gram increase or one digit increase in their hemoglobin level. And more than half of patients did have that increase. Again, it's not a one size fits all. I've had varying success with Xbrita. My patients who do respond to it respond really well. I mean, I've had one patient go from a hemoglobin of seven all the way up to 11, which is amazing. But more commonly, I see closer to just like a one gram or one digit increase. The most common side effect that I'm seeing in my practice for that is diarrhea and stomach upset. So I usually try to uh, I advise my patients to titrate their dose. So start with one tablet and advance to two tablets within like three to five days and then advance to a goal of three tablets, which is that full dose. And that kind of helps your body get used to the medication and decrease the risk of side effects. So there definitely, we have more treatments that are approved and you compare this to other disorders that are much more rare with much more funding and have less prevalence than sickle cell. And there's dozens. So it's four is better than where we were five years ago, but it still is completely lacking. Yeah, because uh, four in comparison, I, I think for most of my life, I think there was only maybe one. Yeah, you only had hydroxyurea and blood transfusions was all we really had to offer. That, that was it, yep. right? And Dari was the then, first treatment for sickle cell that was came out in 20 years, which is nuts. But after that is when we had come shortly after, around two years ago. But yes, it took a, it was a long time coming, that's for sure. So, and, and you can kind of speak better to this, but from what I've observed, it seems like in the past, I don't even really want to say 10 years, but it feels more like the last five to seven years there has been an increase in the amount of attention um, really coming from hematologists in sickle cell. And my maybe jaded view of it is the hematology space, there really isn't, because sickle cell is so underserved, it's easier for people to get published and do studies and kind of stand out and create a niche. Um, it was just a strategy standpoint. Hmm. It, would you say that's inaccurate, accurate, you know, feel free to kind of. I, I mean, I personally think it's inaccurate, but I haven't looked. I mean, I feel like the people who really are in the sickle cell advocates and they just have a, a special spot in their heart for this population. I find that most hemonc doctors or hematology oncology, they more are focused on oncology because unfortunately that's where the dollar signs are and it brings more. Right. Um, but I actually, I haven't really heard of providers going into sickle cell just to advance them, their careers and publications. I think at the end of the day, whether it's on sickle cell or leukemia or whatever your topic of interest and area of focus is, if it's a good publication and it's a good topic, you're going to get published regardless. So I'm, I'm not, I would love to see if you saw anybody or had any insight on that, but I haven't been fully aware of that really going on. So, I mean, and when I say that, you know, I'm not saying that people, you know, doctors don't care and aren't passionate about what they do or anyone, any provider. What I'm speaking to that is they're clearly, if you only have one medication and, you know, this last one just coming out in the last 20 years, there wasn't a level of um, dedication or focus yeah. on sickle cell. And you know, my whole life, they're, they're really, they're, they're, and not to say I went to sickle cell camps and, you know, there, you can always find a specialist. There's someone doing something all the time. You know, they just might be few and far between, harder to, you know, get to or whatever the case may be. Um, but the under, just the overall understanding of sickle cell, I think, has increased mildly. Um, through people in the ER because a lot of times you know, doctors in the ER 
don't necessarily understand sickle cell as a disease. And that's, I think, a lot of the cause for the mistreatment. Mm -hmm. A lot of hematologists really don't understand sickle cell, uh, depending on how many patients they have, just based on exposure. But now it really does seem like they're like, like you were saying earlier, there's a certain level of optimism and research that's going into it. And I've always been curious about what was the catalyst for that change. Yeah, I mean, I was always nervous, like when a doctor, for example, came out, I was nervous because I was thinking, well, now there's a way to monetize on sickle cell that are how do we know patients are really going to get connected to a provider who has some expertise in sickle cell versus now they're interested because they have a therapy that they can actually get good for. So I think it's, um, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I've been in my current role as a hematology NP for seven years. And I would say like right. very similar in the past five, three, I wouldn't even say seven, I would say in the past three to five is when we started to see a lot more interest in sickle cell. And it really is amazing because another part of what I specialize in is hemophilia, which is a congenital bleeding disorder. It's super rare. I mean, it affects one in 5,000 live male births. It's not common at all. Um, but we look at the resources and the funding and the treatment options, and there's such a surplus. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm taking care of a bunch of sickle cell patients where it's much more prevalent. We have more cases, but the funding and the resources that are available are just completely lacking. So I think that the fact there is, it's such a prevalent uh, disorder. And I mean, it affects one in 365 African-Americans, although it does affect all races. It's just, we know the connection between malaria and sickle cell, there was protective towards it, which is why we see right. so many patients from African descent being affected. But we have Europeans, we have population in India, in Central and South America, there's a lot of other races and ethnicities that are affected. However, when we see that the majority, it really is a, a condition that is highlighted among Black Americans, it kind of highlights that racial disparity components. I mean, I, I think I've said it countless times, but they're really greater health disparities seen in medicine than what we see in sickle cell disease. It's really unfortunate and it's very frustrating. That's why I'm so happy that we're doing something like this today so we can really talk about it and have the uncomfortable They put the world on hold and really when George did everything that happened in the injustice that the whole Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like we needed COVID to happen to silence the entire world for us to really open up our eyes and see what's happening. Because, I mean, my social media platform that I made, it really came and the stimulus was when I saw and racial disparities just from COVID alone. That's where I was like, what can I do to bridge this gap? So I was like, let me make a media profile so I can just help educate and um, help decrease health disparities that way. But I think that a lot of times, People refer to sickle cell disease as a black disease and it really does create different stereotypes and assumptions and I mean implicit bias I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that term before but an implicit yeah. bias is okay it's just like a so I interestingly Harvard has this implicit bias test and I was like oh let me see because I really I feel like I'm a huge advocate I I know people don't like when they say you don't see in color but I really make a conscious effort to treat all of my patients equally, give everybody the same treatment. Even growing up, I mean, my mom would treat the janitor the same that she would treat the principal of the school. And I feel like just being raised in that type of household, it made me really empathetic and understanding and I treat people equally. So I take this implicit bias test and it has you sorting out European faces and African-American faces and then good words uh, like as happy and joking and jolly and negative words like hostility anger. And it was just doing different combinations. And at the end of it, it said that I had slight implicit bias, or I had a slight preference towards European faces. And it was like this realization type of moment I had, I'm like, Oh, my God, like, I'm such a huge advocate. And I do so much for this population. And I really strive to treat everybody equally. Some implicit bias born within me inside of me that I'm like, I wonder about all of the other providers, like, what would these results show for them? And I feel like the problem is, is we really need to have providers self reflect at the end of the day, treat patients like you want your parents to be treated or that you want your loved ones to be treated. There's absolutely no reason to stigmatize this disorder and to label somebody as a drug seeker, when they just want to be treated fairly and treated correctly and receive what they need so they don't have to be in the hospital. I think there's a misconception. Like, I don't know who wants to be in the hospital. Again, there's a very I, small percentage who I'm sure overutilize the my, hospitals. Yeah. yeah. Who don't want to go to the primaries, right? And 
just use the hospital as their or the emergency room as their Right. Like, but that's, that's not the majority. That's the minority. But unfortunately, with the opioid crisis, a lot of the different strategies that they're using to control the crisis is negatively impacting all of our sickle cell patients. It's it's really. I, I, I'm on record of saying multiple times uh, that the opioid crisis biggest victims are actually sickle cell patients. So um that's just kind of how I feel about it Um, totally and as a provider I mean I'm the one doing all of the prior authorizations making sure I'm getting the medication approved for my patients so I don't know how many times somebody will go to the pharmacy and be like oh yeah your insurance isn't approved but we're waiting for your doctor to send something well what they're asking us to send is a prior authorization which essentially are forms that justify why we're prescribing what we're prescribing and because of the opioid crisis they've now changed the policies so all of a sudden I'm having to have my patients sign pain contracts and do urine drug tests and all of these things in order to check off the boxes for that insurance plan's policy. But as a provider, I almost have a little guilt because I don't want my patients to think that I don't trust them. I'm literally doing this because I need to get the insurance approval. But on top of it, I have some insurance companies that every single month, I'm having to do a prior authorization for a Percocet. And if you see the volume of sickle cell patients, I mean, I'm taking care of over 200 sickle cell patients and I'm doing that on top of my hemophilia, my clotting disorders, the other areas of focus that I specialize in. It's really, it's negatively impacting the patients because you guys are the ones who are suffering and it's withholding medication that's going to keep you out of the hospital. And then on the provider side, it's just creating so much more work for me from an administrative standpoint and taking away attention that I could be spending on patients, but I'm doing paperwork to get the medicines that they need. It's our system is very flawed. That's for sure. Yeah. And how, how do we, we've kind of started some of these conversations here and there throughout um, our chat today, but how, what are the steps that, how can we as patients work with the doctors, with our medical professionals like yourself, with advocates like yourself to obtain real reform? It's so, I mean, that's a, another loaded question because I don't think, I, what I noticed when I started with my whole advocacy is there's so many small advocacy groups and there's so many people sharing their stories and spreading awareness and doing what they can that it made me realize like we don't really have one big umbrella covering all of these different foundations and all of these different advocacy groups right. that I feel like it needs That's to what I'm working on. Good. Cause I'm like, that's what we need. But I feel like we need to, people need to work within the state because we need to get legislation types of change. But it's all about who, you know, and having the right connections. I wish we could just like look a list of the senators and try and see who have sickle cell or sickle cell trait or somebody affected with that and start targeting those people because we're really not going to get any change. I think another area of change I'm that we need to do is, I mean, we have mandatory newborn screening. So all patients Anybody who is born in the United States are are tests, one of them, including sickle cell. So all of my kids, even though we're all white, we're all checked for sickle cell and none of them have it. But I find that the issue is, is that say you find out that you have sickle cell trait, if your parent, for example, or say your parent just doesn't remember because they were told, oh, sickle cell trait's no big deal. It's benign. You'll be fine. They might not pass on that information. So now that patient never knew they had sickle cell trait. They never had issues their whole life. Now they're pregnant. And they get checked and during the prenatal screen. So when you're pregnant, it's another time where you get checked for. So while I was pregnant, I was checked at that time. I was negative. But say you find out you have trait. At that point, you're already pregnant. Your chance of for what you want to do is very limited at that point that I feel like even just considering legislation to change um, screen, like have a second mandatory screening once you're like late adolescent, early adult, because if you find out when you're 18, that you have sickle cell trait, you're an adult, now you're in charge of your health. And now it's your responsibility to really understand what passing it on to future children. So I feel like that's one area of like where we could involve legislation, which could be really beneficial. I think when it comes to the treatments and how patients are getting, I think we just need to first just spread awareness. Because I think people don't really understand how fragile this condition is. It really it's characterized by sudden unpredictable pain, where you can be totally fine. And it just 
you just need to take a deep breath and all of a sudden you have crisis. I mean, in Florida, we have such a high prevalence of sickle cell, but it rains here for days and days. I mean, we have a terrible raining season that as soon as I see rain on the floor, I'm already preparing myself to have a huge ER census filled with sickle cell patients that there's so many things that need to be done. I mean, in the emergency rooms, we've come up with protocols. So when I, we have a sickle cell patient admitted, we kind of have a guidance of what type of pain strategy and what type of because people always get boluses of normal saline fluid. But in reality, half normal saline, a lot of times is more beneficial because based not to make it too complex, but there's different tonicities of water, which tells us where the fluid is going to move. So half normal saline is going to move the fluid inside the cells. And we want to hydrate the cells where normal saline is just increasing the fluid within the blood vessel. So I think there's different strategies just to make sure that hmm. hospitals are on board. But I think it's very important for um, just to keep spreading awareness. And I feel like that's what all of the advocacy groups and different foundations, what we really need to do is just teach people what people living with sickle cell are really dealing with. And I hope that alone will bring a whole nother level of understanding and empathy. Yeah, I, I think that will help always more education, because then you can talk from uh, a place of knowledge, exactly, right? and, and start the conversations there. Um, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think instead of everyone kind of doing their own thing, we have to have the um, foundations, just consolidation of all of the different foundations and make it more state by state. There is like the sickle cell awareness um, foundation. There's, there's like the SCDAA. The yeah, cell SC, yeah, yeah, sickle cell disease. And there, there's one in my state. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who have a good heart for it but it doesn't always seem to me that there's a strategy there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's all the difference between that's funding um, your intentions too. and your execution. Yeah. You know, like for example, they had a, um, a golf outing for sickle cell and which I thought, okay, great idea. Um, Low impact. Maybe it's not going to trigger crises. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, you, you get different people who, you know, people who just want to, who like golfing will come to it. So it's not too, you know, specific. It's, you know, kind of neutral, but they had it on a Monday. And I'm like, that's just in terms of event planning, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me where people are working and, you know, that's just things like that. Right. No, I totally agree with you. And I, I feel like we have to, I always take the approach where it's like, I'm going to trust that you're doing things with good intention and a good heart until you give me a reason not to trust that. But I, I feel like that what we see is a lot of the people who turn to advocacy work or people who are affected with sickle cell in some capacity. And depending what your background is, you could be so motivated and have such a mission and really want to help. But if you don't know the ins and outs and the logistics of getting things done, that's where there's going to be that disconnect. So I think that's where yeah. the funding could help. Because if you had appropriate funding where you could hire people who I think it's good that people within the sickle cell community are involved because having that direct point of contact who is in it and living with it, whether as a caregiver or a patient of itself, you have the means at least to hire other people who know really how to do legislation because we have a wonderful advocacy group in Florida called ASAP Advancing Sickle Cell Advocacy Project. And it's started by this wonderful woman named Kemba who has a child affected with sickle cell disease. And she, it was just the same thing that everybody hears. They just couldn't deal with what they couldn't stand what their child was going through. And they had to make a difference. And that's how she started this advocacy group. And she's done really wonderful things. And she's starting to make changes from a legislative route. However, she was reinventing the wheel and digging deep and doing everything from scratch where it's like if you had somebody who already had that background knowledge and you had the funding to support positions like that, it's just going to save so much more time and it's going to be more efficient and get everything in a faster process. So I think there's a lot of different areas that could be helped. Um, funding is a huge denominator, unfortunately, a thing that's going to impact that. But at, at a minimum, we just have to keep talking, keep spreading awareness and just keep the, the spark alive. I feel like I'm so impressed when I see all of the awareness that's being shared on Instagram that 
it just every time I see something else, it puts a smile on my face. So I think people really are doing a wonderful job. And we have to keep continuing to do that. And on the provider side of things, we're doing a lot to just continue to educate providers. I mean, I love when I have medical students and fellows and residents who round up my clinic, because it gives you the opportunity to see my sickle cell patients outside of the hospital, because anytime someone's in the hospital, you're seeing them at their worst. I mean, you can't judge somebody based on what they're like in a hospital. So I feel like those type of encounters and those experiences really help change that implicit bias and how we uh, care for patients at the end of the day. You know, I, I think that's a really good point that you just made, because I think the relationships occur because you really can't build relationships in it from an emergency room visit. Yeah. You know, um, you can have a either a neutral or a positive or a negative interaction, but you, you're not building a relationship there because you can even go to the same emergency room and it's very unlikely that you're going to run into the same ER doctor. Um, yeah, exactly. So, but, and then same thing within the hospitals, maybe a little bit more. I feel like I try to build relationships more so with nurses than I do um, with the doctors just because of proximity. You know, you're going to spend a 12-hour shift with the nurse versus seeing the doctor maybe once a day. Right. Um, but I think relationships can really occur when you're going to your doctor's appointments and you're seeing your doctor over years. Like I've been with my current hematologist for 10 years now. Wonderful. And through that, you know, hopefully by choice. Yeah. Yeah. But by choice. And he, he's, you know, considered to be a renowned doctor in the area. Awesome. And, you know, there, there's been highs and lows, you know, there was, um, you know, my hospitalization last year, there was, you know, kind of some tension between us, you know, there, there's been some times where, you know, I didn't think some of his nurses particularly liked me, you know, his main nurse or, you know, or, but, you know, most of the staff, you know, tend to, to like me, but they're just, you know, certain times that come up because, you know, relationships are real and they're raw and things do happen. You know, people kind of, if you don't have conversations with people, you get the wrong impression about things and, you know, misunderstandings can occur. Exactly. No, I think that's so true. And I think the outpatient setting is really where you make that connection. Cause I mean, I try to make it a point to not just get straight into, I mean, you can tell when I'm having a super busy day cause I'm really straight to business, but most of the time I really, I'll try to ask her how's work going, how's school, how are the kids and, and try to develop more of that personal relationship on top of why you're really here and why you're sickle cell, because you really need to have a, good connection with your patient and your patient needs to have a good connection with you. So you know that I have your best interests. And I I do take into account shared decision-making, meaning I will suggest different options, but I'll let the patient kind of decide what are your goals out of treatment and kind of come up with a good strategy that way. But at the end of the day, as a provider, we really are the ones who are in the science and reviewed countless medical journals and data. And we really are data driven and we trust the science and when we have conversations with patients, I totally will listen to my patients and hear them out. And I try to compromise and just come up with something that's a happy medium for everyone. But I think it's also important to understand that your providers really, I don't want to like flaunt my degree at by no means as at that, but it's, we've really spent so much time really understanding the research and the data and understanding what is clinically proven to benefit our patients that I'm all about having conversations, but I think that's where having trust in your provider is so important. So that way, when I am recommending something to you, you know that it's really, I know your history, I know what you've been through, and it's because I really think it's something that could help you. And I think that will help with the best outcomes. But if you have a provider that you don't fully trust, you don't fully feel comfortable with them, you might not get the most out of your sickle cell treatment as you could. And I mean, you picked your provider, you can fire your provider too. So I, I don't think that everybody just needs to stay status quo. Um, you want to have a good connection and if you have one and you don't have a way to get in touch with your provider quickly, if you're having an issue, I would say start to see what other options you do have. I, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I, I think it, I think it is hard because there's not a lot of, even removing from advocacy, there's not a lot of hematologists that really have sickle cell patients and can deal with the unpredictability of sickle cell. Right. You know, so it is challenging, you know, especially with, um, you know, the different insurance providers, like 
you know, you maybe only have five that can, are you're actually eligible to see, and maybe what two of them might have a, a a baseline understanding of sickle cell, and maybe one is a little bit better than the other, but it's it's kind of hit or miss, and and three are, you know, I I've never had a sickle cell patient, or the last sickle cell patient I had was in, um you know, med school or like my first year, it was several years ago, or I'm just not as familiar. And I think that's understandable. You know, if, if you don't have the experience, you just don't have the experience. Right. Um, But I, I think if you can work with a doctor who's even willing to grow with you and understand you and listen to you, you can build from there. And that's a great way to build trust as well. I totally agree. Well, we covered a lot here today. I know. I feel like we could keep talking and talking. We might have to do a, a, a part two of this one. We, we definitely would have to do a part two. Um, just some information I wanted to share with you. I'm actually writing a book on sickle cell, um, and I would love to interview you for the book. Awesome. Well, you know how to reach me. And as always, I'm, anytime I can help uh, spread information or share my expertise, I'm very happy to do so. And... Um, What's the topic? Well, right, obviously it's on sickle cell, but what type of stance are you taking for this book? Um, it's really about sickle cell and what we've really discussed here today in terms of um, health disparity. Sure. You know? so, yeah. So. So and, much and, deeper on health disparity, but I think that's a, a huge need, and I look forward to speaking further on that. Yeah, there. I mean, because there, there's a lot of um, elements to it from the insurance standpoint, from. Um, just a, a quick story to kind of tie into what we you mentioned earlier. Um, so, and I want to say this from a patient, patient standpoint. Yeah. When you're in the hospital, zeros might not happen. Ones might not happen. Significant decreases might not happen. It's about stabilization. Exactly. So if you come in with a seven, in your baseline, we want to get you back to your baseline. So your if your baseline is five, that's where, you're, where we're trying to go. Or if maybe it's four, so, somewhere in there. Or just but so you can manage at home. We might manage not even at home. get you Whatever to the baseline. Whatever is manageable for you yes. at home. Yes. And, and to provide you with the resources to manage at home, because I think that's a part of it as well. Sometimes you send people home and you don't actually give them the tools to manage at home. But it's never, well, I'll actually let you um, answer this question because I I know what I'm going to (laughs) say. But if you come in with a pain at a seven and your pain is actually going up to like maybe a 7.5 and you've been in the hospital for a couple of days, but the the pain regimen isn't quite working because they're not necessarily listening to what your protocol is. That's not what you're talking about, though, right? I just wanted to make that clear because I don't think that's what you were referring to. No, no, no. To. This is like as your pain is improving. But if improving. your pain is, yeah, if your pain is worsening yes. when you're in the hospital, we obviously need to rework that regimen. But this is the assumption that your pain is every day, it's continuing to get a little better, a little better, a little better. Once we get to that point where your pain is manageable at home, like with your home uh, PO or your home oral medications, that's when we start discussing discharge. But if you're in the hospital for four days, all of a sudden day five, your pain is now worse. That's not what I'm talking about. That's the issue that we see where you get premature discharge and we see sickle cell patients having such a high readmission rate. Those are the cases where you're discharged inappropriately. So no, thank you for clarifying. Yeah, exactly. I, I, because I, I had that my last uh, hospitalization, my pain was actually going up and because they're like, Oh, well, you've been in here for a few days, but I was like, but I'm not okay. actually improving. <laughs> so what does that mean? <laughs> that you're you're saying nothing to me at this point. Um, I think that's where the insurance and the length of stay uh, yeah. is in the back of a provider and a case manager's mind. And then honestly, between you and me, if you get readmitted for the same diagnosis within a couple of days of being discharged, that, host, that doctor is not getting paid for that admission, that readmission. So don't even feel bad about that. But I think just communicating your needs is so important. But obviously 
communication isn't always received. And I would say if your pain is not improving and they're not, you're not being listened to or, or heard, I think that's when it's important to reach out to your primary hematologist and have them get in touch or ask your the team in the hospital to speak to your primary hematologist to see what is the better strategy to who really knows you and what would get you out of the hospital faster. Don't, but don't, let me just say, don't give a, a generic hospital number that's like leads you to the operator, like either get a direct number to the floor or to the doctor. And I think in those, you're not getting, you're not being listened to and you're not getting your regimen optimized and you're still having a lot of pain and discomfort. That's when you should try to loop in your primary hematologist to see if they can just vow for you. Like, Hey, this person really does take care of themselves when they're outside of the hospital. They're not hospitalized frequently. And then we can give, have you considered doing a long acting with a short acting? Have you done the Toradol and just kind of see what they've been doing and what we else we could do to optimize your pain management. And, and I think that might help bridge that issue for people who might be in a predicament. I, I think so as well. And like we touched on earlier, just education, you know, and I think learning the language to use and learning what hospital life is about. And that's something I'm going to kind of touch on in the book, because I think a lot of people, hospitals are, you know, like you said, it's not, you're not at your best when you're in the hospital, but you still have to communicate effectively with people. Right. And so learning, learning how to do that and even though you're in pain, really detailing the pain, um, like specifically where it is. And I, I think a lot of sickle cell patients don't understand sickle cell, even though they have it, uh, just because there isn't the same resources in terms of educating on there. So um, my, one of my final questions to you would be, how would you describe sickle cell as just a, a good baseline overview um, for, you know, someone who's maybe not as knowledgeable? And two, um, how, how should someone go about educating themselves on their disease and what does that process look like? Sure. So I'll do a quick little sickle cell 101. So when I describe it, it's important to know that sickle cell is an inherited blood disorder. So that means you're getting an abnormal gene from each of your parents. It's not contagious at all. I know there's some patients who have uh, been stigmatized from that. So it is an inherited blood disorder where you get abnormal gene that codes for your hemoglobin. So you're producing abnormal hemoglobin. So instead of having nice, smooth and round red cells that have a lifespan of 120 days, we have sickled hemoglobin, which turns into a crescent or a C-shaped under various conditions. And these cells are really rigid and sticky and they block flow. So when there's that blockage of flow within a vessel, that's when you get the severe unpredictable, acute pain episodes. But since the lifespan is only 10 to 20 days, it breaks down much faster. And that's why we have the anemia. So people will really have varying severities of the condition. It also is further uh, to make it even more complex. There's different genotypes. So some genotypes have a little bit more of a severe disease presentation. But I mean, the disorder really is characterized by these acute, unpredictable, debilitating pain episodes and sometimes severe anemia that might need hospitalization for management or high levels of opioids. Um, usually these crises are, have different triggers, but some have no trigger at all. You can be totally fine and then out of the blue be having a crisis. But I'd, I mentioned earlier, dehydration is a huge trigger. Another trigger could be um, infection is obviously a very common one. Other triggers are overexertion. So if you're exercising too strong, that can contribute to it extremes in temperature or even just weather changes. I've had countless patients in Florida, they'll have a pool party and then they get out of the pool and they don't dry off with a towel and then there's a breeze and that change in temperature will trigger crises. So it really is an unpredictable nature. And the best thing that you can do is really know what your triggers are so you can try to avoid them, have a good relationship with the hematologist who understands sickle cell and can do a lot of screening because Anywhere blood travels, sickle cell can affect, and we see complications from head to toe in a body. So knowing how to screen and to look for complications before they actually show overt signs of disease, it's much easier to be proactive rather than reactive with the problem. So healthy habits, drink your fluids, manage your stress, wash your hands, get your vaccines, especially COVID vaccine. I'm a huge advocate for that. 
Um, and you can try to live as good of a life with sickle cell. And again, the treatment landscape is continuing to evolve. So we're going to continue to have more and more treatment options and that cure in the horizon sooner than later, I hope. Well, on that note, I think we will end things here, but we're definitely going to have to have Maya back. Thank you so much for coming. And where can we find you? You can check me out on Instagram. I'm the Heme NP. So T-H Heme, H-E-M-E, like hematology and NP, like nurse practitioner. So you mentioned uh, where can people get education on sickle cell? I find the problem with hematology, it's, it's very complex and can be intimidating. So the point of my profile is really to provide education on all things hematology. I do have a stronger focus on sickle cell. And I try to simplify it so it really is easier to understand. Because again, if you have the information that you need and the knowledge you need for your condition, you're going to be able to keep yourself healthier and more importantly, have better conversations with your provider. Absolutely. Well, thank you just, you know, for me, just person to person. I really just appreciate all the work that you're doing in this space because um. I just don't really see a lot of it. So it's uh, someone who's almost 30 years into life. It's uh, very refreshing to see um, that people not directly connected with sickle cell are showing such a um, dedication to it. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. So thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope that my energy and passion will just trigger one other person. I mean, there's, you said early before we started recording, there's really just me and one other provider who stands out for advocacy from the provider side. So I hope that there's more and more providers as the time passes that will just continue to change that treatment uh, for how our patients are receiving treatment. So thank you so much. And hopefully all the listeners have learned a lot and from you and from me, and I hope that we can connect. Absolutely. And please, everyone, go follow Maya at where you the go. NP. Facebook, too, but I would say Instagram is that. Yeah, Instagram is such a great space for sickle cell connectivity for some reason, much more so than Facebook. I don't know why that is, but. Me either. Not complaining, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. you have a great rest of your day. and Likewise. We will have some more episodes of... Um, in the sickle cell space this month for sickle cell awareness month sickle cell september is sickle cell awareness month awesome well thank you so much and uh take care i'll talk soon talk soon take care bye-bye